Do you have or know someone who has black lung? If you're from West Virginia, you do. We'll talk about black lung pneumoconiosis right now on a special hour-long The Law Works. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Closed captioning for The Law Works is made possible by a grant from the Monongalia County Bar Association to support legal information and education for all West Virginians. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Some may have thought that black lung was a thing of the past. It is not. In fact, it never went away. Only now it's more difficult to deal with it. My guests are Professor of Medicine, Dr. Edward L. Petzonk of the Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the West Virginia University School of Medicine, and West Virginia University College of Law, Judge Charles Hayden II, Professor of Law, Patrick C. McGinley. Pat, Lee, thank you for coming in. Pat, thank you. Pleasure. You're going to be a, a regular. <laughs> Maybe that's because of the things we're talking about. Perhaps. Black lung, pneumoconiosis. Lee, where does it come from? When was it first recognized? Well, pretty much as soon as coal mining became an industrial operation back in the 1800s, the coal miners recognized that the dust was doing something to their lungs. They called it miner's asthma. But really at that time there were no x-rays and so there was not really a way to define the disease. About the turn of the century, uh, x-rays were discovered and pretty soon the U.S. Public Health Service and other uh, public health uh, authorities around the mining regions began to realize that the lungs of miners looked very different on x-ray than the lungs of a normal person. So that was sort of the beginning probably in the early 1900s that uh, uh, it was clear that there was something going on in the lungs of miners. But there was really an argument as to whether coal mine dust was bad for the lungs. Uh, I think the miners knew it, but uh, it took a while for the science to catch up and actually show si the documentation of that. That, that, that kind problem. of intrigues me. Why would it take time to show that it was a problem? Well, there are probably a number of reasons. Um, the science of epidemiology had not fully evolved in those days and uh, the techniques of breathing tests and x-rays and also the, the very precise scientific definition of the findings hadn't fully evolved. But I think also it's, it was a difficult disease to study. Miners would uh, come to an area they'd mine for a while and leave and uh, there was no systematic approach to, to the documentation. Uh, early in the 
uh, in the 40s and, and 1950s, particularly in, in Britain where there was a lot of coal mining going on, uh, their uh, government did establish a pneumoconiosis research uh, office which was uh, uh, systematically charged with finding out what was going on in the miners' lungs and their series of studies were, that were done were, were extremely useful at that time. Well, we, ha we have a series of pictures of lung tissue showing the actually the development of black lung over time. Can you tell us a little bit about these photos? Well, when, when the miner uh, first begins to work in a mine, uh, they're going to inhale dust, because there's dust always in coal mining. Um, they will get a bit of cough and phlegm due to the dust settling in the larger airways. But if the dust is not adequately controlled and if the miner works for maybe more than a couple years, the dust settles down deeply into the lung. Now I can show you here, um, this is uh, picture one, shows what a normal lung looks like. Uh, you can see uh, there are a few little black streaks in the lung, but mainly uh, the lung is uh, still very well aerated. The tiny little air cells are, uh, are normal. And this person who was 78 years old when they had this autopsy and this uh, lung tissue was, was taken, their, their lungs are basically normal. But then if you look at the uh, picture two, this is an autopsy of a uh, coal miner. And here you can see uh, black spots throughout the lungs. And uh, you can see also that the air tubes have, uh, are thickened and probably, although uh, in the autopsy you wouldn't see it, there was probably mucus and congestion in the airways causing the miner to have cough and phlegm. Now these black spots uh, tend to cause or result in uh, stiffening of the lung and it makes it more difficult for the miner to get the air in and out of their lungs. Uh, if they continue to work, this disease progresses and you can see in, uh, in uh, picture three here, uh, this is a fairly uh, advanced case. You see lots of black spots. Some of these have turned into scar tissue where there's no longer normal lung and the miner has a very difficult time uh, catching their breath and possibly at this point might even need to wear an oxygen mask just to be able to have enough oxygen to, to uh, really live their lives. Uh, the, the final uh, thing that, that happens in many miners if they have enough dust in their lungs is shown in picture four. And we call this uh, massive lung fibrosis. In picture four you can see most of the lung is replaced by what the miners call a lump of coal. And basically there's enough black dust in the lung that the lung is no longer a functioning organ giving oxygen to the, uh, to the tissues of the body. At this stage, the miner often has to wear oxygen, really is unable to do anything uh, aside from just activities of daily living. And frequently their heart will, because of the strain on trying to pump with very low oxygen, the heart uh, will go into heart failure and uh, frequently when these miners die they will either die of a very uh, gasping type of respiratory failure where they struggle and finally uh, can just no longer get enough oxygen or they will go into heart failure and uh, their body will swell and uh, then they 
they die from that. And occasionally, or sometimes, uh, because the lung is distorted, they may get infections, pneumonia, and so on in the lung, and uh, they're just not able to throw it off because of the damage from the, from the dust disease. So that's sort of a kind of a thumbnail as to what happens in the lungs. So in essence, the coal dust settles in the lungs and plugs them up and kills the tissue so the miners simply can't breathe. That's a fair, fair summary. Different, different miners have different sort of patterns of reactions. Uh, some have more deposition of the dust, and it partly has to do with the size of the dust in the mine where they're working. Some of the dust will go way, way down in the lungs, and uh, miners can get uh, a dust-related emphysema. If you look at picture six, you can see the pattern is different. The lungs are black, but uh, there are large areas we would call Swiss cheese lung, where the lung tissue is really dissolved away from the effects of the dust. Some people will get more emphysema, some will get more of the scar tissue, and some, most get a, a combination of those uh, types of reactions. So in essence, the miner dies either from suffocating because he can't breathe, or his heart gives out from the work of trying to pump enough blood to supply oxygen to the system. Uh, that, that's, yes, sadly uh, what we have to deal with, and I think as you mentioned in your introduction, once the damage is done in the lungs, really, although we can give treatments to try to uh, relieve the symptoms, there's no, there's no reversing that damage in the lungs. And so really it's not, uh, it's not curable in any traditional sense. How long does a miner have to work before they start having problems like this? Well, um, it, historically, uh, most miners would work 15 to 20 years before they would really begin to notice that they had a problem, and another five to 10 years before they were simply unable to work and had to had to uh, leave the mines or perhaps uh, uh, became ill and, and had to be hospitalized and so on. We have noticed uh, in some studies that uh, were done, oh, about 10, 10 to 15 years ago, that there is a, um, an additional, more rapidly progressive form of the pneumoconiosis, and we've written several uh, research reports on this. Uh, it seems particularly common in West Virginia, and a lot of the miners that we, uh, that we examined had really only worked uh, even as little as seven years in the mines before their lungs went from normal to the end stages of, uh, of the dust disease. The end stages? Yes, that's, that was, the, 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 some miners even in their 30s were having the, basically the disabling and lethal uh, massive lung fibrosis. It's not uncommon for young people to start working in the mines. I say young people because increasingly women are, are working in coal mines now too, and I assume, assume uh, encountering these same kinds of difficulties. We'll start working at 18 or 19 years old if they can and so they are seriously impaired by the time they're 30. Well, um, I think uh, Pat McGinley is very familiar with the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, and you may be able to comment. Uh, I know that uh, the, the miners who were uh, victims of that, uh, of that disaster had autopsies that had some surprising findings, as I 
I understand. Pat, you were on the governor's independent investigatory committee of the Upper Big Branch explosion. 29 coal miners died there. And uh, you uh, worked with David McAteer, who was the chair of that committee, and several others. What was the situation with these coal miners and Black Lung? Well, <clears throat> during the investigation, uh, we, we asked for and were privy to the autopsy reports. Uh, not all the miners uh, uh, could be autopsied because of the damage to their bodies, but the great majority of them could. And 70% of those miners who were autopsied uh, uh, showed evidence of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> serious black lung, some as young as 25 or 26 years of age. And <clears throat> uh, the team that we had, to, we had uh, an epidemiologist, we had mining engineer, uh, Secretary Mac, uh, McAteer was the head of MSHA and the Clinton administration. We were all shocked uh, at that uh, proportion of miners <clears throat> who had uh, 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 evidence of complex black lung. Uh, it was uh, far outside the, uh, what was thought to be the, the, the norm uh, uh, <clears throat> of uh, co-workers pneumoconiosis in American mines. You say the norm. The fa simple fact of the matter is if you work in a coal mine, you are going to breathe in coal dust. Well, uh, Dr. Petzon could speak to this, but uh, I think it, it is clear, the science is clear, that black lung can be prevented. It's not a disease that coal miners necessarily will uh, incur if uh, mining regulations and operation of mines are done in, in conformance with uh, standard operating procedures to, to uh, minimize the amount of respirable dust that miners uh, breathe. Have we made progress <clears throat> with this disease in preventing it? Well, I, I'd have to say there has been a lot of progress that was made, and particularly during the first 30 years or so after the, uh, the Coal Mine Act was passed in, in 1969. Up to the point, that point, there had been no regulation of dust in the United States coal mines. but. Uh, in, in 1969, really, at least to an extent triggered by the Farmington disaster, which uh, occurred not far from here, uh, the, the Congress passed a really comprehensive uh, mine safety and health control bill called the, the uh, 1969 Coal Mine Health and Safety Act. We, we have a quote from that act. It's uh, from the preamble, actually, the statement of intent that talks about what a coal miner is entitled to uh, during their work history. We have that slide, please. It says, the Coal Mine Safety and Health Act is intended to provide to the greatest extent possible that working conditions in each underground coal mine are sufficiently free of respirable dust to permit each miner to work underground during the period of his entire life without incurring any disability from pneumoconiosis, black lung or any other occupation-related disease. It's, it's, frankly, it says to the maximum extent possible, which is, I think of that as kind of an acknowledgement that if you're going to be a coal miner, you're going to have some problems with this. But we want to pass a law that is going to keep you from becoming disabled or seriously disabled as a result of it. Well, let me interrupt there. I mean, that was a statement made in 1969, and the, 
and the methodology of, uh, of mining has changed and the ability to reduce respirable dust in the workplace has advanced. Uh, very recently, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, the Secretary of the Department of Labor, Thomas Perez, said, uh, today we advance a basic principle in promulgating new restrictions on respirable dust in the mines. He said, you shouldn't have to sacrifice uh, your life for your livelihood. I believe we can have both healthy miners and a thriving coal industry. And I think that's the truth today. Uh, we've gone farther in, uh, in coming up with ways to protect miners from black lung. The problem is that the, that methodology isn't being used in, in, in some mines in this country. We're talking about black lung. My guests are Professor of Medicine, Dr. Edward L. Edward L. Petsonk of the Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the West Virginia University School of Medicine and West Virginia University Professor, West Virginia University College of Law Professor Patrick McGinley. I'm Dan Ringer and this is a special hour long, The Law Works. How was that greeted by the industry? Uh, like black lung has been treated since uh, it was first identified as a, uh, 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 an affliction of, of coal miners. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, an excellent article uh, uh, in a law review a few years ago that uh, talks about the 1930, the denial of coal workers' respiratory difficulties had triumphed in the United States. Due to a host of factors, historians are still trying to under, understand. One, one industry position at that time was that the only real danger posed by either anthracite or bituminous mining was inhalation of siliceous dust associated with sandstone, slate, and other minerals that occurred with coal deposits. And according to industry doctors, miners with dust-induced lung disease must have in, inhaled dust containing rock dust uh, since inhaling particles of coal posed no hazard at all. And for decades, that was the position of the industry, and it took not only the explosion at Farmington that killed 78 miners in 1968, but also uh, a uh, years-long campaign by uh, widows uh, of miners who had died uh, as a result of black lung to, to force Congress to act to... Uh, to uh, promulgate, or I'm sorry, to um, uh, enact legislation uh, intended to protect miners uh, from respirable dust and also to provide them benefits if they uh, incurred the disease. Well, one, would, one might think that if uh, <clears throat> other forms of rock dust uh, cause what we're calling black lung today, and that's in, uh, inevitable in the mining of coal, that it's pretty much the same thing effectively. If you're breathing in rock dust or breathing in coal dust and you're suffering from it, what's the difference? Well, I think Dr. Petzlock can tell you that there is a, there, there is a, a difference between rock dust and coal dust and, and, and more recently miners are uh, uh, inhaling both. Well, is one better than the other? <laughs> well, one is worse than the other, yes. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, Pat is correct and the position for many years of the mining uh, physicians and the mining industry was that carbon or coal didn't have an effect on the lungs but we now know of course that it does it causes uh, black lung pneumoconiosis chronic bronchitis emphysema and a group of disorders but um, that uh, silica which is a uh, crystalline rock that occurs in 
uh, in nature in a lot of places, but certainly in adjacent to the coal seams, there's often uh, rock containing silica, uh, is also very toxic to the lungs. And it uh, appears, it, it certainly is toxic in itself, but it also appears that in certain concentrations when it's mixed with the coal dust, tends to accelerate the uh, development of coal mine related uh, lung disease and uh, you know control of both silica and respirable coal mine dust are both important to protect the the miners lung health and the you know the the 1969 law was actually a really a pretty remarkable piece of legislation in that it dealt with both the coal and the respirable coal dust, as well as the silica. There were, although not a specific limit, it reduced the amount of silica that was permissible in the coal mines. And uh, it required periodic measurements. And it set up a, uh, an agency, the uh, enforcement agency, that actually had authority to fine or even shut down mines that were not protecting the miners' health. So that was really a very, uh, a very uh, sort of uh, progressive and, and effective approach. And I think uh, if you want to look at the effects of that, uh, one of the things that the Mine Act did was re require that coal mine operators offer a chest X-ray to every miner every five years approximately. And the miners took advantage of that, many of them, and had their lungs evaluated, checked. We call it health monitoring or health surveillance. And those x-rays also provided the federal public health officials with an, a way of tracking whether the regulations were really helping the miners. We have a chart showing uh, some of that data. Yes, and I think you can see on this chart, this is the percentage of miners who participated in these x-ray surveillance programs uh, that had a uh, evidence of uh, black lung or pneumoconiosis on their x-ray. And you can see back in the early 70s, about one in three miners who'd worked at least uh, 25 years had um, x-ray evidence of pneumoconiosis. And that declined after the act was passed and after the enforcement of the dust rules uh, right up to about 1999. You're looking at the top line on that chart. Right. The top line shows miners with 25 or more years of, uh, of work underground, and the other uh, lines show miners with fewer years, and obviously the prevalence of disease was less, but of course if they worked more years, then their prevalence would probably be mm -hmm. equivalent. But the, most miners work 25 or more years in mining, so this basically shows the risk of a miner spending a career in mining and uh, at that time about one in three would develop black lung. Uh, that declined to about 4% in 1995 to, two, to 1999. But then something happened after that and uh, the, the prevalence of disease jumped back up again, about doubled. Now, the only way that that can happen, since this is a dust-related disease, is that the miners were inhaling uh, more dust. And uh, we don't know exactly why they were inhaling more dust, but we know that uh, the biology of the disease probably hasn't changed. Uh, what has happened is that perhaps the mining techniques, the type of coal that was being mined, or as Pat mentioned, some of the seams may be narrower and they're mining more of the adjacent rock, uh, but the, the, the dust 
levels that these miners inhaled had to have been uh, toxic, and therefore now we see about twice as much disease. As a layperson, I look at that chart, and, and it says in the mid to late 90s, it started to increase, and it takes 10 years or so for black lung to become a real problem for a new miner. So you back, back that off 10 years, and in the middle of the 1980s, and I've, I hear that described as the me decade, the phrase greed is good, and I wonder, were the coal mine operators becoming more aggressive in the mining of coal, <clears throat> becoming more demanding of the miners? Out of the Upper Big Branch investigation, uh, one co-executive was uh, referred to as demanding that uh, the coal miners be in coal all the time, that they run coal all the time. Before taking safety measures. Yeah, it, it, that was the, the priority, was to run coal, not to protect the miners. And so you start doing that, 10 years later, what happens is pneumoconiosis, black lung, starts to increase. Am I wrong about that? Well, uh, you know, certainly from the, from the medical perspective, we know that people who have never inhaled dust will never get black lung. They will never get pneumoconiosis. Their lungs will not turn into the black scar tissue. It, it, I've looked into this and it, to my knowledge, there has never been a case of uh, massive lung fibrosis like we're seeing in these miners due to anything but dust. Uh, there was one case of a, of a hemorrhage, lung hemorrhage that caused it, but aside from that, in the whole medical literature, I couldn't find anything else. So this, what we're seeing here, must be due to uh, increased lung uh, deposition of more, more dust. Now, I can't say why it happened, but it must, it must be that. Well, I can, I can say something about that. Uh, that evidence indicates if there's more dust in the air, then the methodology for controlling dust and, and keeping it at a level that, that will not injure miners is not being implemented. And that the law is not being forced by state and federal regulators. And that's what we saw at Upper Big Branch. The reason that mine exploded was that there was a uh, release of a small amount of methane if there had been adequate ventilation that would carry the methane and coal dust out of the mine it wouldn't have had the kind of explosion that occurred if the uh, the measures to reduce coal dust had been working which they were not on the on the long wall uh, shear uh, the water sprays weren't working uh, and if the, if the company had seen that the mine had been rock dusted properly, you wouldn't have had of an explosion. But the, the mine was gray and black with coal dust, uh, indicating the respirable dust wasn't being carried out by ventilation and it wasn't being uh, rendered inert by rock dusting. So there were human factors, both of the operator and the enforcement officials uh, in a, in a uh, an environment where there was increased amount of dust that also causes black lung. So they're all connected. We're talking about black lung. My guests are Professor of Medicine, Dr. Edward L. Patsonk of the Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the West Virginia University School of Medicine and West Virginia University College of Law Professor Patrick C. McGinley. I'm Dan Ringer and this is a special hour long, The Law Works. Well, are there other causes of black lung that can overlay the results that you're seeing? I, I have heard, for example, smoking causes black lung. 
Well, unfortunately, that, that's really a bit of misinformation that has been around for a long, long time. Um, I, as I said, have looked into the literature extensively, and I have never found one case, no matter how much the person smoked, that anyone has ever gotten massive pulmonary fibrosis or the types of lung disease that we are seeing in these minors from, from tobacco smoking. It just, it just doesn't happen. Now, of course, smoking is not good for anyone, and it's not good for your lungs. And uh, no one should smoke, and particularly minors should never smoke. But actually, the, the prevalence of smoking among minors has really declined quite a bit. Uh, like most of our uh, society, about 50% of people smoked in the 50s and 60s, but it's down to less than 20% in the mines uh, now. And uh, that's good. Additionally, minors really are prohibited from smoking when they're underground in, in coal mining, so they actually smoke less than other uh, workers of, of a similar uh, socioeconomic status. But uh, no, uh, smoking can damage the lungs, but it does not cause the type of lung disease that we've been talking about today, and I, I think we need to put that. There's no way that anything to do with smoking could have caused the increase in black lung uh, that we're that we've seen among these miners. Well, this is an era of personal responsibility. Don't the coal miners have some responsibility under the law for their own health and safety, Pat? Well, they do. Uh, and of course, if you care about your own life, you're going to be concerned. But uh, black lung is a is sort of an insidious disease. Uh, uh, people who are working there uh, are working at, at, under the supervision of managers. If managers say the ventilation is okay, the dust suppression is working, uh, if they object to that, uh, and they have the right to do that, uh, the, the reality is that they're often targeted as troublemakers and they're not going to be working at that mine much longer. And they're, all, they're, they're targeted as troublemakers by the mine management, but also by other miners. That can happen. That can happen. Uh, there, there was a recent story uh, out of Kentucky uh, where a, a mine foreman uh, was following management instructions and altering uh, dust uh, monitoring uh, devices and uh, he, he retired and he has black lung and he uh, confessed that he had done that sort of thing and uh, he thought it was the right thing at the time because his bosses told him to do that and he suffered the consequences. Well, you either monkey with the uh, results of the monitoring or you lose your job and we get somebody in there to, that will monkey with it or will not complain about it. Well, at, at Upper Big Branch what was going on was when inspectors would come in to check the ventilation and the dust control methodology, there was a, a plan set up where the, the uh, the mine guards would phone into the dispatcher and the dispatcher would phone into the mine and they were running without adequate ventilation and without adequate dust controls and they would hurry up and try to fix it in advance of the uh, uh, of the inspectors going underground. Yeah, there's a certain amount of irony I think in this. We try to enact laws to protect coal miners from black lung, try to keep the air a bit cleaner make the job a bit safer and the miners complain that we're trying to 
kill the industry. In fact, uh, miners and mine operators, Murray Energy said in, re as, uh, in response to some recent rules to try to inc increase the Tied to decrease the level of pollution in underground mines that uh, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, quote, clearly seeks to destroy the coal industry and the thousands of jobs it provides. And coal miners believe that. I don't know if it's true. Is uh, it true? Is MSHA out to get coal? Well, I don't know that, that uh, a majority of coal miners believe that. Uh, but uh, that's really beside the point. But there are rallies, Pat. People stand on the steps of the Capitol in, in I, Charleston protesting is, these regulations. It is outrageous that the coal industry uh, attributes the Obama administration's efforts to reduce respirable dust and to monitor dust in the mines as a war on coal and coal field communities. That's preposterous. You know, we're talking about a situation where, according to statistics from the mid-1990s to 2005, 10,000 miners died, 1,000 a year. You know, if the coal industry is opposing the Obama administration's black lung regulations, where are they? Why haven't they come up with ways to protect their own miners? They, the, the, the resource they say that is the most important thing in, in, in coal mining. It's just outrageous. The National Institute of Health 15, more than 15 years ago said it's necessary to cut the amount of respirable dust in coal mines by half. And uh, the Obama administration has a long period of taking industry and, and coal miner and public comments, reduced the amount of respirable dust. Not in half, uh, it probably should be less, and they required uh, personal dust monitoring devices to protect the health and safety of miners. It has nothing to do with a war on coal. We've got to stop the, 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 uh, uh, the, the thousands of injuries and fatalities uh, uh, every decade from, from black lung. We get the politics out of it. <clears throat> we need law to be enforced and the industry ought to get on board. Over the past 40 years, 76,000 miners have died as a result of black lung. And the current statistics indicate 1,000 a year. What percentage of that? In Table 1, we have percentage figures based on longevity in the mines. Uh, Lee, what, what is the current death rate for somebody who works a full career in the mines as a result of black lung? Well, the most recent uh, review that I've seen is uh, was done several years ago by uh, uh, some colleagues of mine at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And uh, they showed a decline very similar to Table 1 in the death rates until about the late uh, 1990s. And then after that point, again, uh, the what they call the years of potential life lost, which is a measure of mortality from pneumoconiosis, increased and have just about doubled again, similar to the disease prevalence. So in addition to the x-rays showing the disease, the miners' uh, risk of, uh, of uh, dying of pneumoconiosis has, has also gone up uh, a similar proportion in the last decade or so. Does that relate to surface mining uh, miners as well? Well, <clears throat> there have been some recent studies uh, of surface mining Surface mining for many years, because it's done out in the open and without the 
difficulties of ventilation like an underground mine was thought to be relatively free of hazards. But these recent studies have shown very similar, although somewhat lower, but similar severity of disease. For example, these types of massive fibrosis that we're seeing in the underground miners have also been uh, detected in a, in a significant number of uh, surface coal miners. And although the prevalence of disease is somewhat lower in the surface miners, there's still uh, significant amounts of disease, uh, you know, one in 50 miners rather than uh, the, you know, in West Virginia where it's uh, maybe one in 15 miners. So uh, uh, it, the, uh, the surface coal mining is definitely has been uh, given a pass in terms of its, uh, of its concerns in the past, but it's now on the radar screen that it's, it's a significant problem. From my experience, uh, the modern large-scale surface mining produces an enormous amount of dust. There's blasting. <clears throat> There's uh, uh, large rock truck uh, haulage and drag lines that are constantly producing dust and dry weather, and I would, as I would assume that, you know, that's what coal miners uh, and a surface mine are, uh, are inhaling, but it, it certainly is a, is a concern. The classic image of a, an underground coal miner uh, after a work shift is somebody who is covered in coal dust from head to foot and is just glossy black as a result of that when he comes out into the light. Can't we put masks on these guys and gals now and, and say, well, just essentially a gas mask, uh, full face mask, just wear this and you won't have any problems and you'll live to a ripe old age? Well, that is, uh, that is something that a lot of people think would be very logical. But actually, the science shows us that it doesn't work. And in fact, there, the science of dust control is, is really well advanced, and particularly in underground mining, there have been numerous studies of how to control dust. And wearing a mask is, is the least effective way of, of preventing dust from getting into the lungs. There are engineering controls, there are ventilation, there's water sprays, uh, the design of the equipment, uh, the large exhaust fans at the mine shafts and, and uh, portals and so on. These all combined with a strict dust control approach can really control the dust to safe levels. The use of the mask in an underground mine is really problematic for a variety of reasons. And in fact, this was recognized when the federal law was passed um, the use of a, of a dust mask to control dust was prohibited. It was said you must control the dust using the more effective methods. Uh, uh, the dust mask it can be used, but it really is not very effective, and these are the reasons why. First of all, a miner's moving around, they're uh, constantly in different positions, and the dust mask only works when it has a very tight seal around the face so that no air slips around the dust and gets into the lung, mask and gets into the lungs. And um, of course, uh, some miners have beards, but even if you banned beards, people are going to be bending, they're going to be moving, they need to communicate, they'll have to take the mask off to tell their colleagues something, or in the case of an emergency, the mask actually is a hazard because it prevents you from communicating in a, in a quick and effective manner. So for all these reasons, and also the fact that you never really know if the mask is working correctly or not because there's no 
way of monitoring the level of dust that gets through the mask like there is uh, the other types of controls. So for all these reasons, uh, the use of a mask really, in, and especially in underground coal mining and especially in low seam coal like we have in West Virginia and Southern West Virginia, uh, the miners are on their hands and needs. The mask is just simply not, not gonna work. Well, I know from personal experience when I was in the service, I had to wear uh, full face mask, uh, but only for evacuation procedures. In fact, I can't think of a single occupation or industry where somebody says, here, put on a mask and stay here and do something. It's always put on this mask and exit, get out now because we don't want you to have to be here. But still and all, with that mask on, I, my vision was severely limited because you, you just have the eyepieces, you can't, you have no peripheral vision whatsoever. And the more efficient the mask is, the harder it is to breathe through it. And of course, if you're filtering out dust over time, it's going to clog up the filters in the mask and it's going to become even harder. So yeah, I can see why they prohibited masks as an effective technique. So now we use, what Pat, dust pumps? What is that? Well, uh, there's various uh, equipment that can reduce dust. The dust pumps, the, as uh, Dr. Petsock was saying, the water sprays, ventilation is a lifeline of the mine, prevents explosions, uh, prevents ignition of coal dust, like what happened at Upper Big Branch. Uh, it really isn't surprising that 70% that, uh, of the miners who were killed had black lung because uh, the witnesses that we interviewed in the investigation said that the entries, many of the entries were black for long periods of time without being rock dusted. So there, the methodology is there, it's proven, it has to be used, and if it's not used, there have to be serious consequences. And, and in some minds, the, that's not happening. And it, because uh, it takes time to rock dust and change bits on the long wall shear, and that reduces production. Okay, so I'm a coal miner and I've got black lung. All I have to do is apply for my benefits and I can stop doing this job. Good luck. Why do you say that? Uh, <clears throat> the the uh, playing field is tilted severely against uh, miners who uh, suffer from black lung and seek to take advantage of the federal black lung benefits program. The legal playing field. That's right. That's right. Then. How so? Well, uh, the black lung benefits process has become complex and tortured. There, uh, uh, there, there are several levels of hearings and appeals and uh, black lung cases are seldom resolved uh, before three, four, five, six, seven years. Uh, and most importantly, only a third of uh, black lung claimants, coal miners who uh, assert that they have black lung, are represented by legal counsel. Two thirds do not have lawyers. And they're going up against the, the uh, most experienced, qualified, uh, legally, uh, lawyers and the expert witnesses uh, uh, retained by coal companies to dispute their claims. Well, let, let's take this step at a time. Why can't they get lawyers? Because the, the process is so long and drawn out and, and skewed against uh, the, the, the claimants that 
lawyers can't afford to take cases. Uh, they don't get paid until the end. And uh, lawyers are actually people. Uh, and they have to it's put radical bread. idea. But yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, uh, but they have to put bread on the table for their families as well. And, and the, the cost of black lung litigation in this maze uh, uh, of administrative processes expensive. And coal miners don't have the money to pay lawyers. They don't have the money for doctors uh, uh, to the extent that's necessary in this, uh, uh, in this process. I, I want to point out one thing. If a young lawyer were to come into practice today and say, I'm going to handle black lung cases and becomes an expert, a really, really, really world-class expert in coal miner safety and health law or black lung, and it takes seven or eight years to get a case through the process. And to get paid. And to get paid, she or he is not going to eat for the first seven or eight years of their practice. That's right, or they're going to do other things and not develop the kind of expertise that the, the lawyers employed by the coal company have. There are lawyers in big law firms in this state and uh, throughout the coal fields that specialize in black lung litigation. That's all they do. But if I have black lung, the x-rays will show that. Uh, a physician will be able to look at that and say, okay, he has black lung, grant the benefits. Well, it would be nice if it actually worked like that. Uh, the problem is, uh, first of all, as I said, the minor uh, can't afford to go out and find uh, an expert witness. They may use their own treating physician. And the, uh, the coal companies who, are, who almost invariably challenge uh, a claim for black lung benefits have a whole stable of experts who, who do, often do nothing but black lung uh, uh, analysis. And a recent study by ABC News and the Center for Public Integrity, a year-long investigative study, showed that, uh, uh, that doctors uh, uh, from distinguished medical institutions uh, were examining uh, black lung or uh, claimants' x-rays and uniformly denying that black lung existed. A doctor that ran the Johns Hopkins University black lung program testified in 1,500 cases over the last, I don't know, 10 years. Not one time did he find that the miner suffered from black lung. He's up against, uh, as an expert for the coal companies, the, the local physician, the treating physician, uh, the GP, that's uh, analyzed the, the, the symptoms and the, the x-rays of his patient. And therefore, in the black lung claims process, thir only 13 or 14 percent of these minors uh, actually receive benefits. Uh, it's, it's, it's a process like if you can envision a football game and you've got the Pittsburgh Steelers or the West Virginia University Mountaineers on one side and the other team, uh, they've got all the regalia and they're, and they're in wheelchairs. Uh, it, uh, it's supposed to be an adversary process. That's the way that the law is supposed to work. You've got good lawyers and good experts on each side, and the truth will prevail. What doesn't happen? But with don't black the records claims. speak for themselves? Well, uh, the the claimants' doctors say it, you can look at uh, black uh, X-rays uh, of those who are suffering from black lung and. Determine, you know, do they have black lung, a compensable black lung or not? And you had a doctor at Johns Hopkins who was saying 1,500 times, no, 
And that's just absurd. And Lee, when a physician puts John Hopkins after his name, that carries some weight, doesn't it? Well, in this case, sadly, uh, I think that uh, the miners suffered because of what was clearly a unprofessional approach to to uh, assessing medical evidence, and you know, I think uh, it will have to come out in the court of law. But the, the miners whose cases were derailed for this, I don't know how they're. I don't know what's going to happen with their cases. I guess the it's the, too late. Uh -huh. yeah, that, the They've recent case of uh, Mr. Fox was litigated in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, uh, the the uh, statute of limitations had run on uh, the ability to challenge uh, the denial of benefits based on uh, faulty uh, uh, evidence submitted by uh, doctors and law firms uh, opposing the the claimant. What do you mean faulty evidence? Well, uh, an example would be a case in West Virginia where uh, one of the nation or one of the um, the state's leading law firms. Uh, uh, represented uh, a coal company and uh, it had, a, as I say, they have a stable of experts in black lung uh, and uh, they took a report from one of their experts and uh, deleted the part where the expert, uh, the physician, uh, indicated that the claimant actually had black lung and submitted that as part of the, of the court papers and that claimant was denied black lung benefits, only later it was discovered that this unethical conduct uh, had taken place. And the West Virginia Supreme Court uh, said in suspending that lawyer from practice that they had little difficulty concluding that the lawyer's conduct was deceitful, dishonest, and a, and a misrepresentation and prejudicial to the administration of justice. So uh, not only do you have uh, uh, doctors who are uh, uh, in the stable of uh, coal companies who, who never find black lung. You have some lawyers who are bending the rules or acting unethically, uh, uh, denying claimants who don't have their own lawyers. It's shocking. They and, can't get lawyers. Well, you know, think about this. You, you've got an expert. I'm, if I had an expert that 1,500 times always told me that my client was right, yeah, I'd be saying, this can't be. When I have an expert witness in a case, I say, I want the truth, and, and that's, that's what I'm interested in. And if what you have to say as my expert is adverse to my position, I want to know that. I want to settle the case. I want to know if it's a case that can be successful. And I don't go to experts that every single time tell me what I want to hear. And I, I, I question what lawyers are doing in, in that context. Was that a unique occurrence? Well, there's evidence that it's not a, a unique occurrence. The, the study of, uh, performed by the Center for Public Integrity, which incidentally won a Pulitzer Prize uh, this year for that uh, investigation, indicated that uh, this practice uh, may be fairly widespread. There was a recent case, you alluded to it, where a West Virginia law firm withheld evidence, took it out of a medical record, 
so that the court wouldn't see it. And the family of the, of the man who had by that time died of black lung tried to appeal the decision, and since this is a federal issue, it goes into federal court, and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found that removing those records was wrong, but it wasn't quite wrong enough to allow that miner's family to recover something. Well, that wasn't wrong. really the holding. The, the holding was because the statute of limitations had run on the, the, the miner's widow's claim, uh, the, the widow could only argue that uh, the law, law firm and the lawyers had perpetrated fraud on the court. And that's a very, very difficult uh, uh, claim to support evidentiary uh, with evidence. Uh, but the court did say uh, that uh, we bestow no blessing and place no imprimatur on the company's conduct, uh, which uh, the court said warrants nothing approaching judicial uh, approbation. Uh, so the, this wasn't, that case wasn't decided on the merits of the miner's claim. Uh, and moreover, in, and I listened to the oral argument in the case, the, the judges were saying, well, you know, this is an adversary system. Uh, the, it's supposed to be function as self-policing. Each side has their own experts, as I was saying a few minutes ago. And uh, uh, so it all comes out in the wash. You challenge that if you've got a doctor that always says in, in, in 1,500, 2,000 cases that there's no black lung, you bring that out. The problem there was that Mr. Fox didn't have a lawyer. And Mr. Fox was supposed to say, are there other records that aren't here? Are there other experts who have different opinions? And he didn't know to say well, Who that. would know that? Well, you and I maybe. Well, maybe. You know, some lawyers would if they had experience in black lung uh, litigation. But it, it's just uh, uh, defies comprehension how a process like that uh, could go forward. And, and it, it, I think the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals was indicating that the narrowness of, uh, of their holding and not uh, placing their imprimatur on what the coal company and its lawyers and doctors had done. Uh, it's not a level playing field for unrepresented uh, coal miners who are suffering, who are ill who have trouble breathing, they're on oxygen, and they're expected to figure out the complexities of a, uh, uh, of a black lung case uh, up against uh, uh, premier lawyers and doctors from distinguished medical institutions. I've thought from time to time, given the urgency in the, in the industry to increase production and to cut costs, that if co-operators could get baboons to mine coal, they would replace all the coal miners. The problem with that is the federal government would never allow animals to be put into the conditions that coal miners are put in every day. Well, at least if those conditions uh, aren't consistent with the law. Uh, Professor Pat McGinley, Dr. Lee Petzog, thanks, Petzong, thank you gentlemen for being with us. We appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you also for being with us. On behalf of the Law Works, I'm Dan Ringer. Good evening. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future The Law Works show, or if you're a school teacher and would like to receive a DVD of this show for classroom use, send us an email to thelawworks at comcast.net. 
or visit us on Facebook. On the LawWorks website at thelawworks.org, you'll find a listing of recent The LawWorks programs, additional information about this show's topic, and video of this and recent shows. You can also find The LawWorks programs on YouTube and iTunes. The LawWorks is produced in cooperation with the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, the West Virginia Bar Foundation, the Mountain State Bar, the Monongahela County Bar Association, and the West Virginia University College of Law. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Additional support for the law works is provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 